So chapter six is I kind of been I'm gonna I'm doing it in three sections. The first section runs through the first eighteen verses. Uh, and it is all that section is all about how we practice our religion, how we act out, live out our faith. And verse one, uh, what Jesus does here is he uses a, a I think it's rabbinic stand, uh, style of teaching here, where you teach the principle, and then you give three il- illustrations that elaborate on it. This was a standard mechanism. And so the principle of the first 18 verses of Matthew chapter 6 is in verse 1. The takeaway, the key point, get this, is verse 1. Typically, we kind of build to a conclusion, but Jesus starts with a conclusion here. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So we are, I think the key phrase there is, why are we practicing our righteousness? Because we're supposed to. He he never says, don't practice your righteousness. So we go through, that's clear. It's about why are we practicing our righteousness? Why are we coming to church on Sunday morning? Why are we coming to a Bible study on Wednesday night? Why are we teaching youth or teaching children? Why do we do these things? Why do we give? Why do we get out in the community and serve? This is what it matters. The heart is the essence of this. If we remember the end of chapter 5, right? It was talking about intention and hearts, right? Well, now he is applying this principle to the way we practice religion, the way we do church, the way we do parachurch, if you get a other church organization or non-churches that are faithful church organizations, right? And it's about the reason, because what he says here is the in order to. What's the cause? What is your in order to when you practice your religion? What is your in order to when you read the Bible, when you pray, when you, when you get out and about doing things? And what he is going to say over the next 17 verses after this is that it is irrelevant what we do if we're doing it for the wrong reason. Because what he's going to do is he's going to look at the three pillars of piety in Jewish life. The three things that every good Jew would do if they wanted to be a good Jew. Right? Praying, fasting, and giving to the needy. And he says, it doesn't matter if you do these a lot, if you're doing them in order to be seen by other people, in order to get the credit and the approval and the applause of other people. He says that if you do that, there is no reward from your Father in heaven. Because you didn't really do it to serve God. You didn't do this religious act to glorify him or to worship him. You did this religious act basically to glorify yourself. So I want to look at each of these, but I think the what we want to do is not just look at these three, right? These three were the things you did if you were a Jew. I think the application has to be for us, too. What do the things we do as Christians typically, and maybe we don't do a lot of fasting. Some do, some don't. But there are other things we might do in our habits of practicing Christianity, and we need to look at each of those. Why are we doing this? Why did we come here tonight? Why do we go to church on Sunday morning? Why do we go to Sunday school? What's our reason? Because that's really the, the, the idea here. And so 
I will take a, I'll pause for questions and then we'll look at each of these sort of three major pillars, if you will, of how you practice religion back in the day. Okay, try to stop because I'm trying to get better about remembering to give pause for questions. So he looks at these three things, and, and we need to realize that these three things are laid out in parallel. He uses language that's very parallel. He ends each of the three segments with the same phrase. That helps us understand they all go together. They're all making the same point. They're all illustrating the same point. These are some of the clues in the way the Bible is written, um, standard ways the good writers wrote back then to help us understand these things are related, they go together, and there's one big point being made. Now, the good news is he already told us the big point. It's in verse 1. So we see what we're going to see as we go, and if you listen, is that there are three times. At the end of each one, we're going to see the repetition, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. All right, this is, and remember the beginning was, you will have no reward from the father if you do it for the wrong reasons. And the conclusion of each of the three is that if you do it for the right reasons, you will be seen by the father. He will reward you. Now, one thing I want to point out, this is really, as we transition to chapter 6, this is the first we see a lot of that understanding, that teaching, that God is our Father in a very personal way. That's one reason I think this takes a more encouraging note, really it's starting to take us in a very encouraging way. Because this idea of a personal relationship with God as our personal Father is fairly new. Right? The Israelites would call God the Father, but they don't. it wasn't really a personal sense. He was considered the national father. The Old Testament talks about Israel, the nation, being his son. But they didn't really view it in that personal way. And so we see Jesus starting to talk about this personal idea, your father. Not just my father, meaning Jesus, but your father. So I think this is a very encouraging trend we see that Jesus is teaching. Just it, He weaves so much into everything he says. Right? He's making this huge point about how we practice our religion, but along the way, it's helping us understand every step over and over and over again. Your Father in heaven. Your Father in heaven. Your Father in heaven. So I think, of course, we need to realize that as we encounter Jesus, one of the points also we take away from this is there are no secrets. He says it over and over again. There are no secrets from God. There are no secrets from Jesus. They know. Right? So this is the tricky part. It's about the heart, and they know what's in our heart. We can hide it well within our group. Right? I can hide things. You can hide things. We are none the wiser. But God knows. So it begins by talking about giving, verses 2 through 4. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now ultimately there's not, you know, what we can go fairly quickly through these, right? The essence of the message is don't make a big show about your giving. Right? There probably were... There's various opinions on what the reference to the trumpet means. Was there a deal where they're talking about special almsgiving festivals where it's a huge party and everybody knows what you're doing and you're out there giving your money, maybe? Uh, is Jesus just 
being speaking hyperbolically, right? Is he just exaggerating? Like, don't be like those guys who throw a huge party. Look at me, I'm giving money, I'm giving money, I'm so generous. Unclear what he's specifically referring to here. Probably not a common practice for people to walk to the temple with a trumpet player in front of them, but the essence of the message is don't go make this big deal out of how much you're giving and what you're doing and when you're giving. And that's, I think it's an interesting paradigm. It's a challenging paradigm. Um, Sort of challenging for me because I love giving. Uh, I think it's one of the real blessings in life. Uh, But I hate to talk about the specifics of it because of this passage, right? I feel like I, and yet sometimes I have to talk about it, right? We get to a passage in the Bible that talks about giving. And I'm not going to talk about you giving when I'm not going to share that I, you know, that I'm not going to lead off from me. So sort of an interesting and, and at least uncomfortable, but I, I actually like this, the, the idea of just giving as anonymously as possible because I know God knows, All right? So that's giving. Then we get to pray. And, uh, yeah, this is an interesting one. Right? And we're going to do this in two sections. One, we'll talk about the lesson part, and then we're going to talk about the Lord's Prayer. Because it would be sort of remiss not to talk about that since we're here. So we remember that that one began here when you give to the needy, and then ends with your Father's season secret will reward you. Again, note the parallel structure. When you give to the needy, don't do this thing that draws a ton of attention to you. Like those hypocrites, they get praised, they get no reward because they just had their reward in terms of celebration. Do it in secret, God rewards it in secret. Same structure coming up. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Again, Instead of the other one, they may be praised by others. Here it's they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Same message. When you go, to, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. And then we'll stop there. Right Again, relatively straightforward message. When you pray, it's not a big show. You're not doing it to say, look, that person's the praying champion of Lakers Baptist Church. And there was a tendency, I think when I read this, I often think of the story of um, Elijah and the prophets of Baal, right, where he's challenged the prophets of Baal, hey, bring call fire down from heaven. And then, like, they make up their two altars of wood, and, and, and the prophets of Baal, there's all these prophets of Baal, and, uh, and then I picture Elijah just sitting back, like, chilling, like, this is going to be a show, and these prophets of Baal, they're dancing around, and they're screaming and hollering and praying and cutting themselves and all this stuff, and it goes on and on and on and on. That's what I picture with this piling up of phrases that he talks about, you know, this kind of, where it just goes on and on and on, thinking that by volume you're going to wear God down and, and convince him. And instead, he just says, well, make your request. And, and again, make your request of your father, right? Well, I mean, if you have kids, are they more likely to have success with you when they're un- going on and on and on and on and on and on, right? 
No, they're your, this is your kids. You're their father or their, your mother. You want to do nice things for them. They can just ask. They don't have to say, but mom, but mom, but mom. But dad, but dad, but dad. So he says, just state the request, right? It's not a, it's not a show. In fact, this is, we need to realize it's not about a show. When we pray, this is our relationship with God. This is our time with our Father who wants to hear from us. He's excited that we're talking to him, right? Not because he's desperate and lonely, but because he made us to have a relationship with him. And so when we're finally doing that and getting the picture and we're growing in that relationship with him, we're doing the thing that he made us to do, to relate to him, to glorify him, to, to honor him. And so we don't need to put on a big show with our prayer. And that's kind of the, that's the point he's making, right? And so, and again, we, he, he uses this language of our Father. So, so I picture warmth and relationship and intimacy and care. This is what Jesus is telling us prayer is really supposed to be about. Not the big show. Not the piling up. And I won't give specific examples because I want to insult somebody because many people who we might say, well, they're piling up words. That may be what really works for them to form an intimate relationship with God and to pray, and that's very effective for them. Right? So I'm not going to say or judge. But you've got to find what works for you that is genuine, heartfelt, respectful, honoring, loving, and so forth. But the point is we don't have to just go over and over and over again in a, you know, in a, in a, in a short span. And let me do one quick sidebar, and then we can stop for questions, right, before we get into the Lord's Prayer. One sidebar on verse 6. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, right? Or as the KJV says, go into your closet. Okay, and if you go into your closet, go for it. That's fine. But don't, you're not required to never pray in public, right? I've known someone, at least one person, who was extremely uncomfortable with public prayer because of this verse, right? Because it says pray in secret. So this person is uncomfortable with prayer even in a church context or with, or with other people praying in a church context. So it's like, is this disobeying the scripture? Which says to go pray in secret. And I said, well, it's not that you can never pray in public, because if it was, then Jesus violated his own rules because Jesus prayed in public quite often. It gets back to the point of this whole segment, not only chapter 5, but of course specifically everything in chapter 6. It's about our hearts. Right, so the point is not, not that we don't ever pray in public and that we should, as a church, quit praying in Sunday morning and quit praying in Sunday school because we're going against the teaching of Jesus. The point is, what is our heart in that prayer? If we're praying to put on a show then yeah, we should go find a closet somewhere and really pray. But if we're praying to honor God and to express relationship with sincere requests, that's just fine. All right, so I want to I make sure that that's sort of the, the takeaway um, because, like I said, someone was really, really kind of twisted on that, twisted up about this and really kind of tense about this, uncomfortable with praying in church. I was always, for a long time, I was very uncomfortable praying in public. Um, again, partly related to this. So questions on that? We're moving a little bit quick tonight. That's good. Maybe that means we'll have lots of questions at the end. Oh, that's a tough one. Yeah, that's... 
I do not have the master on that one. I don't. I can't write the. I can't write the book on that one. Um, there are some mornings at whatever that is, five o'clock, five fifteen. It's hard to keep that mind focused. Uh, now, I think that I have found for me what is beneficial is, is most of the time I do follow a pattern in prayer, which um, many of you know the ACTS. Um, Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. This is by no means the only way to pray, right? I have found this helps me to stay moving along, and that if I do start to wander, I can sort of pull it back. Uh, And what it is, is it's a pattern that begins with praising God, adoring God, um, lifting Him up, right? Taking the, and as we'll see, it's, in many ways, this pattern is driven from the Lord's Prayer. Um, to start with focusing on God before focusing on yourself, uh, which is sort of our natural tendency, particularly as we're first really starting to learn and get into prayer. Um, and it's not that it's wrong, but again, heart matters, so it kind of helps. You start with, with praise for God. This is an area where uh, over the years I've found reading the Psalms has helped me be, break out of the rut there. Um, so it stays fresh. Confession, uh, any sins you need forgiven. Uh, thanksgiving, you know, specific things you're thankful for. And supplication, your your requests, the things you want to lift up. Again, not the only way to do it by any measure, but I have found that helpful. It keeps me a little bit on track to have a little bit of a framework. Uh, yeah, if anybody else has a really great technique for staying focused all the time in prayer, by all means, shout it out. Yes. Yes. Years ago, we were in the military housing, and they were people talking and talking and talking. That's all the problem. They were all the very best people to talk to. How are you in your closet? You know, I'm not right. But you literally, in time, People do? Yeah. Now, the interesting thing is the evolution of the English language is from at least one thing I've heard that seems plausible. Um, it was Daniel Henderson. He, he was here several years ago talking about prayer. Uh, he said he was on a tour in England or Scotland and of a castle, right? And he came to a room, and the sign said the king's closet, and it was a meeting room. And in the 1600s, your closet was the place you met with your closest advisors. It wasn't where you hung your clothes. Uh, language changes. The English language is by no means the ex- an exception. What's that? Normal folks, probably not so much. Yeah. Right. Right. So then we see in verses 9 through 13, we see the Lord's, what we know to be the Lord's Prayer. Right? And he says, pray then like this. Right? I want to emphasize that's like this, not pray these exact words as a requirement. But pray a pattern like this. Pray a style like this. Pray priorities like this. It's a great prayer, right? Absolutely. Good prayer to pray. Should be prayed. But it doesn't have to be the only way you pray. And it should, the whole point of this whole section is your heart has to be in it. So if you're only praying this rotely and your heart isn't in it, you've missed the broader point of chapter six. Uh, 
So our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And I have a footnote in mine, which I do prefer, where that it probably means deliver us from the evil one, Satan, most likely. So again, this is sort of the, the how, it's a pattern, right? Not necessarily exact words. I think the value of this, a lot of the value, right, comes from Jesus, so that's good. Uh, but notice there are six requests, or seven, dividing, depending on how you divide the last one. The first three are about God, right? You make God your first priority in prayer, and it's the, high, the lifting up of God, right? The priorities. And so I think one of the great values from this is taking away what are Jesus' priorities as he's teaching them how to pray. First priority, honoring God. Hallowed be your name, right? That your name would be honored and praised in all the world. And if you're here on Sunday mornings, we had a few weeks ago, there was the, God accused the Israelites of despising his name. That's the extreme opposite, right? This is the, and the opposite of despising God's name is hallowing God's name. Respecting, honoring, praising, lifting up who he is. Because remember, the name of God is he, his qualities. It is who he is. It's not just his name like Brian. It is the essence of God. He prioritizes the kingdom, right? Your kingdom come. Your will be done. The priorities of God. Those are the, the, the first priorities. And then we move into daily provision for our basic needs, right? Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. Daily need, right? Sin forgiveness. And spiritual protection, right? Deliver us, lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil or the evil one. The thing I like about it or that one of the things it teaches me is this is not just a laundry list of me, 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 running down my list of things. This is God, 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 and then what God wants for me. Food, forgiveness of sins, spiritual protection. It is God-centered, it is kingdom-focused, and it addresses our genuine physical and spiritual needs. And it's, sort of, and it's implied in here, right? It talks about daily bread. It is implicit that this prayer relationship with our Father is to be a daily relationship. Not a once-a-weekly relationship on Sunday morning. That we should be praying to our Father every day that and the analogy I draw here, right, he brings bread into the equation, right? I think the clear analogy that's trying to be evoked is manna, right? Old Testament manna, the bread from heaven. The rule for manna was you could only collect enough for the day. If you tried to save it, it got all nasty and maggoty. So you couldn't get your manna for the week. You had to depend on God each and every day. Likewise, our provision for our needs, for our spiritual protection, for our forgiveness of sins is a daily activity. We don't get to pray up on Sunday morning when we've got a little bit of leisure time before we come to church and be like, sweet, I am all prayed up for the week. See you next week, God. doesn't work that way. It's like manna. 
And then the last little bit on prayer. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now that is a challenging couple verses that speaks to our heart condition, right? Once again, chapter 5, chapter 6, all about our heart condition. And the message here is if you're coming to God you need to come with a clean heart where you've already let go of things. You have forgiven others because otherwise it's going to keep you from getting in the place where you can really fellowship with God. You know, if you're busy all tore up with anger and, and bitterness towards somebody, it keeps your heart from getting where it needs to be. I think 1 Peter 3.7 describes um, if husbands mistreat their wives, that it hinders their prayers, right? That it's not just that it has a negative impact in this world, but it it damages your ability to get in the place where you need to be to fellowship with the Lord. The last little bit is fasting. Um, I'll read it real quick. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Again, that same structural pattern. When you do it, the reference to hypocrites, the what the hypocrites do. They do it so they can be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward, the applause of others for being faithful. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. I've always found this one weird, so I did have to do a little research on this, like what the whole anointing your head thing was about. So it's basic skin care in the Middle East. You would get kind of dry, crunchy skin if you didn't oil yourself up a little bit. Uh, and so when they fasted, they had this tendency to, to not only were they refraining from food, they were refraining from creature comforts, like oiling up their face so, and, and, and cleaning up. But the net result is, of course, you could tell when somebody was fasting because they looked kind of all gnarly. Right? They'd be like, I'm fasting, and so I'm not going to shave or comb my hair. Because I want to make sure it's really clear to everybody, I'm fasting. Well, don't do that. He says, instead, you don't want anybody to know you're fasting. For me, that would mean keep a good positive attitude. And don't get all hangry. Because the reward is, if we're doing it to get applause from people, that's it. That's all you're getting. But if we're doing it because we want to honor God, we want to worship God, we want to get closer to God, we want to use that time when we're not eating in prayer and devotion to the Lord, that's the real reward. All right, so that's the first half. Any questions on that? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. It's a more prayerful. I mean, it's not. I mean, fasting is not eating. I mean, it's literally not eating. So it is taking that time and those creature comforts and using that for prayer and for devotion. So. It's not like it makes more power, like, oh, my prayer is more valuable because it came while I was hungry, but that you are devoted. You're, taking, you're setting aside more of your day to fellowship with the Lord. There you go. 
And I guess the other thing I would note, he says, when you fast, by the way, it's that he, Jesus is assuming that everyone's going to fast. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So when he's speaking to his immediate audience, he literally means the food. But I think you're on to it, which is that the essence of this is, okay, these were the three things the way that is, the Israelite people practice their faith. But what translates to us, because the message of all three of them is the same, it's about our heart. And so if it was like, say I wanted to be more of a giver, and so I gave up my car and you know walked to work, uh, every day and like had a sign on, you know, I was telling everybody, ah, I walked into work today. Why do you, why are you wet in the rain? Oh, I walked to work because I gave all my money away because I'm such an awesome person. Uh, I think it absolutely translates. It's because the essence is it's about heart. So the application is in our heart in any way we practice our faith. Because I think we can be, you know, when we serve the homeless, right? He could say, when you serve the homeless at the homeless shelter, right? Don't say like, Hey, everybody, look at me. I'm such a great person. I'm a humanitarian. Unless you can say, hey, I went to serve at the homeless shelter because, you know, God tells me, Jesus says, what you do for the least of these, you do for him. Because Jesus has a heart for the kingdom. Jesus has a heart for the hungry. Jesus has a heart for the homeless. Where it's a reflection on God. You know, it goes back to, uh, it's back in chapter 5, salt and light. In the same way, let your light, yeah, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So, does that kind of answer it? Yeah, uh, excellent point. Yeah, we should not think that he's just talking about three things here and be like, sweet, I don't fast. So I don't have to worry about how I pray and how I give. No, it's how you come to church. It's how you sit in church. It's how you go to Sunday school. It's how you do anything you do that's a religious activity. Anything else on that? Otherwise, we'll start talking. I've got a few minutes, so I'm going to start talking about stuff, right? Because the last two parts of chapter six are about stuff. And I, these are two of my absolute favorite passages, right? The, the treasure in heaven and the, the, the bit about anxiety. I don't think I'm going to get to both tonight. But verses 19 to 24, I find this incredibly valuable, right? And, and somehow God's lined up. We're going to be talking about. I, know, I shouldn't say, right? We're talking about money on Sunday, too, because we're in that passage in Malachi as well, that, that the one that gets used and abused by pastors across the land to say, give more money. Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure is in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So we're talking about treasure. Everybody loves treasure. He says, focus on heavenly treasure, not earthly treasure, because earthly treasure 
can be stolen. Right? He talks about thieves breaking in. I hadn't thought about it, but but if you live in a in a house that's made out of mud bricks, like all they really have to do is kind of use a shovel to get through the wall and take your money. Uh, I guess that's probably why they, they buried stuff in fields back then, because your house was not very secure. Your earthly treasure can be stolen. It can decay. The stock market can crash. Right? The company that holds your bonds can go bankrupt and stop paying interest. Your, your savings can lose their value. They can turn to nothing. And regardless of all that, even if they do great, they are guaranteed to have no value for you when you're dead. Every investment will go to zero from your perspective when you die. Where's heavenly treasure? The fruit of righteousness. What I, here I think of chapter 5, verse 12. Uh, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The reward for being persecuted, for proclaiming righteousness. Right? That is permanent. That is eternal. This is the point Jesus is saying. Now, we have about four minutes left, right? He is not saying don't save money. He's not saying don't do some retirement planning in this day and age, right, when nobody else is going to take care of you. He's not saying don't be careful about your spending or don't work hard or provide for your family because there are other passages in the Bible that say, go get a job, right? Second Thess- I think it's Second Thessalonians, basically, go get a job. There are other passages that say be responsible with your finances, right? We're not supposed to do nothing necessarily. Now, God may call us to do something that is radical, right? He may call us to give up everything, but that's not the general norm. But he's saying, once again, in line with everything else we've seen in chapter 6, with everything we saw in chapter 5, it's about the heart behind it. What are we saving for? Is the saving an obsession? Are we anxious and worked up and and saving every dime and not sharing, not giving, not caring for anyone? You know, working so hard to get a few extra bucks that we spend no time with our families. Where's the heart? Where's the priority? Where's the intent behind it? That's kind of the, the message here, right? So it's about what motivates us. Is it kingdom growth? Is it serving the kingdom, right? So that we're, we're saving and living responsibly, but we're also giving generously. Right? I don't think there's anything wrong with, with saving responsibly, but giving generously at the same time. Or are we just focused on earthly values, hoarding our money? Who can get the biggest pile? i got to have a big pile of money. I don't feel comfortable or secure if I don't have a big pile of money. Now, we'll talk about that next week, right, when we get to probably one of my longtime favorite passages on anxiety. But it's about priorities. Then we have this interesting segment about the eye, which has always mystified me. Right? I've always thought this is very strange. Right, and I did. I've done some reading about it. I've been sort of percolating around it in my mind. Right, the important thing to realize: this is still about money. That whole I segment. Now, there's a couple ways I know this. Right, one is I'm pretty sure that because the last verse is it takes us back to money. Right, um, cannot serve two masters. So you have a section about money. You have a section about money. You have something in the middle. It's like an Oreo. Right, when you see that. It always means the cream filling in the middle is about the same subject as the two cookie parts. Right? Matthew does several of these. Mark, in the Gospel of Mark, loves these. They're called intercalations. You don't want to write that down. 
But an intercalation is where one story gets interrupted with a different story, then the first story concludes, and the two stories are related. They're about the same thing. I like to think of them as Oreos, yes. Uh, exactly. And so then the other thing is the I is, I've been reading a lot about the I thing because I'm like, because I'm pretty sure that there's a Jewish idiom going on here, and there is, right? The I is kind of synonymous with the heart in Jewish writing. So when Jesus is speaking to a group of Jews, they understand that the I represents the heart condition. Right, there's always that deal if you read the Old Testament with, uh, was it Jacob and then Leah had bad eyes and Rachel had good eyes, right? And I'm pretty sure it's not about the color of her eyes, right? I think it's about the heart condition, why he doesn't really like her. Or as a different Jewish idiom says, he hated her. But they had an awful lot of kids together. Okay, that's a different idiom. Probably didn't really literally hate her. It was a reflection of character, and in fact, this idea of the good eye by then had become a known figure of speech referring to being generous. And the bad eye was a known figure of speech that had come to mean being stingy. So these verses, as the intercalation clues us in, to realize I'm in the middle of an Oreo, right, so i got to be about the same thing, so how do they relate? The thing is, this is there's an underlying idiom here that, says, that talks about generosity. So it concludes, and where, where we'll conclude is, is this last verse. Um, you cannot serve God and money. I firmly believe, I say a lot, there are only two possible relationships with your stuff that you can have. Either you own your stuff, or your stuff owns you. We live in an incredibly materialistic society. We live in a very prosperous part of that incredibly materialistic society. It is very easy for even very good Christians to be owned by their stuff. One of the best ways to avoid being owned by your stuff, being generous. And getting rid of your stuff when you realize your house is full of stuff. But, but generosity, being faithful in your giving, being generous in your giving, one of the best ways to let go of this thing that is trying to hold on to you. Because we cannot serve two masters. So let's close with questions, and then we'll, we'll pray, and we'll pick up anxiety next week. Anxiety about money, particularly. But questions? All right. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for these words of your Son. We thank you and are challenged by them. Lord, challenged to inspect each of our practices of worship and praise, Lord, help us to be faithful in how we serve you and how we praise you and how we pray, how we give. It would always be for your honor and never for our glory, never trying to promote us. Lord, help us to be freed of any attachment we have to stuff, where stuff has control over us. Lord, help us to be people with good eyes and not bad eyes, generous and serve faithful to your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.